This is Space Time, Series 25, Episode 21, for broadcast on the 18th of February, 2022. Coming up on Space Time, more delays for NASA's new SLS heavy lift rocket, exotic X particles detected in quark gluon plasma, and Starlink satellites falling out of the sky. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. The long-delayed maiden flight of NASA's new heavy-lift SLS moon rocket's been postponed again, now possibly slipping back to April or May. The 98-metre-tall SLS, or Space Launch System, is the largest and most powerful rocket to be developed by NASA since the mighty Saturn V moon rocket of the Apollo era, and that was more than half a century ago. The unmanned Artemis I mission was slated to launch several years ago, with the last firm date being November last year on a test flight that would take an Orion spacecraft to lunar orbit for the first time. NASA says it's not working on any major issues. Engineers simply need a bit more time to close out a whole bunch of minor items, and it's all being made more difficult because of the COVID-19 pandemic. These include the flight termination system, which causes the launch vehicle to self-destruct in the event of a major malfunction or off-course flight. Still, the problems need to be worked on and resolved before the new bird can fly. Late last year, NASA identified a minor glitch with an onboard controller on the number 4 first-stage RS-25 main engine, which was failing to power up consistently during tests. That control has now been replaced and all four main engine controllers are now performing nominally under test. The engine controllers act as the brains for each of the former Space Shuttle RS-25 engines that will propel the SLS into orbit. They'll provide the precision control of the engines and diagnose any problems. With its four main engines and twin strap-on solid rocket boosters, the first stage of the SLS will generate some 39.1 meganewtons, that's 8.8 million pounds of thrust, and that's 15% more than the mighty Saturn V. Now, if the unmanned Artemis I mission goes to plan, then Artemis II will carry the first humans on an extended flight around the moon, most likely in 2024. And that would then clear the way for Artemis III to return humans to the lunar surface in 2025. But before all that can happen, NASA need to complete their test verification schedule. Still to come is the SLS launch dress rehearsal. That'll involve moving the giant SLS rocket and its Orion capsule on a crawler transporter from the Vehicle Assembly Building at the Kennedy Space Center to Launch Complex 39B. That'll be followed by a full fueling of the rocket on the launch pad and initiation of the entire launch sequence other than the actual ignition and liftoff itself. Meanwhile, assembly of the SLS rocket for the Artemis II mission is progressing well and the manufacture and testing of components for the Artemis III and Artemis IV missions has also commenced. The Artemis II SLS Interim Cryogenic Propulsion Stage, actually a modified United Launch Alliance Delta Cryogenic Second Stage, is now finishing final preparations at the United Launch Alliance and Boeing facilities at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Base, which incorporates the Kennedy Space Center. Segments of the Artemis III SLS are under construction at the United Launch Alliance's plant in Alabama, with both solid rocket boosters and RS-25 main engines for both the Artemis II and Artemis III rockets now in the final stages of assembly. 
Meanwhile, the Artemis II engines are ready for integration into the SLS core stage at NASA's assembly facilities in New Orleans, while the Artemis III engines are under preparation at the Aerojet rocket ions plant at NASA's Stennis Space Center in Mississippi. While all that's going on, Northrop Grumman have completed casting solid rocket booster motor segments for both the Artemis II and Artemis III missions at their Utah plant, and they've now started work on segments for Artemis IV. The solid rocket boosters used on the SLS are exactly the same as those developed for the Space Shuttle, only longer. While all that's going on, a number of other missions in support of Artemis are also slated to launch this year. These include an orbital test flight of SpaceX's reusable Starship. A version of that will be used as a shuttle to ferry astronauts between the Lunar Gateway Orbital Space Station and the lunar surface. There'll also be five missions to the Moon for NASA, including Rocket Lab's Electron Capstone mission to lunar orbit slated for this month. And there'll be three missions to the lunar surface under the Artemis III Commercial Lunar Payload Service Program, basically setting things up near the lunar south pole for when the first astronauts arrive. Between 1968 and 1972, America launched nine human missions to the moon, six of which successfully touched down, allowing 12 men to walk on the lunar surface. NASA's next chapter of lunar exploration, called Artemis, has the task of not just going to the moon to create a long-term human presence on and around it, but also to prepare for ever more complex human missions to Mars. So, what will an Artemis mission look like? Everything is designed and tested with our most important element in mind, the astronauts. Their deep space, human-rated spacecraft called Orion, built in three parts. The crew module, where up to four astronauts will live and work throughout the flight. The service module, with life support systems for the crew and its own engine and fuel reserves. And a launch abort system, with engines capable of pulling the crew module to safety during launch, should anything go wrong. To accomplish the task of launching our crew and heavy payloads, NASA is building the space launch system, comprising of a cargo hold, an exploration upper stage, a massive core stage, and two extended solid rocket boosters. Altogether, this is the world's most powerful rocket, and it exceeds the legendary Saturn V of the Apollo era in numerous ways. Sitting on the launch pad, the entire rocket, fully fueled, weighs just over 6 million pounds, 5.2 million of which is just the fuel. Once ignited, there is no stopping what comes next. All four RS-25 engines and the two solid rocket boosters come to life, thundering our crew upwards. Two minutes after ignition, the solid rocket boosters are spent and released. Eight minutes after launch, the core stage is depleted and separated. The upper stage fires briefly, placing Orion into a parking orbit around the Earth. Here, the crew reconfigure the spacecraft and check systems to confirm everything is ready for deep space travel. With a go from mission control, the crew reignite the exploration upper stage engines to leave Earth entirely. The exact timing of this maneuver is critical to reach a speed that can escape Earth's gravitational pull, but also put Orion on a course that will intersect the moon days later. Once this burn is complete, the upper stage of the SLS is jettisoned and the crew aboard Orion coast for several days toward all that awaits them at the moon. Approaching the moon, we see the fundamental differences between Artemis and Apollo. Instead of requiring Orion to serve as an expendable lunar command module or to carry a constrained lunar lander, 
the Artemis missions will take advantage of a different approach, pre-staging. Everything needed for lunar missions will be positioned in advance by commercial and international partners. This includes rovers, science experiments, and human-rated systems on the surface. But it also includes a dedicated lunar station in orbit around the moon called Gateway. Here at this station, we can pre-stage a robust lunar lander and establish a strong communications relay. Designed with open standards, the Gateway can be expanded as new missions and partnerships develop, allowing multiple human missions on the moon at the same time and enabling ongoing science to be conducted even between human missions. The Gateway is also capable of adjusting its orbit to allow access to every part of the moon, something the Apollo missions could not do. But the real key in this approach is placing Gateway in a unique halo orbit to perfect the maneuvers needed for Mars missions. And with the growing list of commercial and international opportunities, Gateway is the ideal hub between Earth and all that lies beyond. Returning to our crew as they approach Gateway, the Orion must match the elliptical orbit of the station in order to successfully dock. Once on board, pre-selected crew members transfer to the lunar lander, while those assigned to Gateway remain on station. The lunar lander system itself is built for three unique steps. Descending from the halo orbit of Gateway down to a low lunar orbit, descending from low lunar orbit to the surface, and once the lunar mission is complete, launching from the surface of the moon and ascending all the way back to the orbiting Gateway. Once back aboard the Orion spacecraft and undocked from Gateway, the crew fire their engine once to break out of the halo orbit, and once again to sling the spacecraft around the moon, placing it on a multi-day trajectory back towards Earth. As they near the end of this journey, the service module is released and the crew module is oriented heat shield first. Entering Earth's atmosphere at 25,000 miles per hour, the friction of air slows Orion considerably, while also subjecting it to temperatures of 5,000 degrees. With the Orion now at just 300 miles per hour, a series of parachutes uniquely tested and produced for this moment deploy, decelerating the craft to just 20 miles per hour for splashdown. With each successful mission, Artemis ushers in the next wave of men and women to explore our moon and prove that together we are ready to go beyond. But NASA and its partners aren't the only ones looking at going to the moon this year. India plans to go back to the moon with a lunar rover around mid-year. Japan has planned its own lunar rover mission for later this year. South Korea is looking at a mission to the moon in August. And Russia is planning its own moon mission this year. All in all, a busy time as we go back to the moon. This is space time. Still to come. Physicists may have identified an exotic X particle in quark-gluon plasma. And Starlink satellites are falling out of the sky. All that and more still to come on space time. Okay, let's take a break from our program for a word from our sponsor, NordVPN. You're probably familiar with the old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, that's how a lot of people feel about their internet security. They're not too worried about things being hacked or having their personal information stolen because they don't think anything bad will happen. That is, until it does, of course. The thing is, you never know when you might be the target of a cyber attack. 
Hackers are getting more and more sophisticated every day, and they can easily steal your personal information if you're not careful. So do what I do and protect yourself online. And one of the best ways to do this is by using NordVPN. With NordVPN, you can rest assured that your computer is safe from hackers and other online threats. You see, NordVPN encrypts your data so that nobody can access it without your permission. Plus, with NordVPN's strict no-logging policy, you can be sure that your activities will never be tracked or monitored and can't be accessed by government agencies or others who may want to snoop on what you're doing. So, why not give NordVPN a try and see what you think? Take advantage of the no-questions-asked 30-day money-back guarantee. And there's never been a better time to try NordVPN than now. You can grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash Gary, or simply use the code stuartgarry, that's all one word, to get a huge discount off your NordVPN two-year plan, plus one additional month for free and a bonus gift. And as I said earlier, this is all completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. So why not give NordVPN a try? You've got nothing to lose. They're the fastest VPN service and they're just a click away. And you'll be sleeping better knowing that your data is protected by the best. That's NordVPN slash Stuart Gary or use the code Stuart Gary at the checkout. And of course, the link details are in the show notes and on our website. That's nordvpn.com slash Stuart Gary. And now it's back to our show. You're listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Physicists have identified exotic primordial subatomic particles called X-particles in experiments reproducing quark-gluon plasma. The findings, reported in the journal Physical Review Letters, could redefine the kinds of particles that were abundant during the earliest moments of the universe 13.82 billion years ago. During the first millionth of a second after the Big Bang, the universe was a broiling trillion-degree plasma of quarks and gluons. Elementary particles and forces that briefly glommed together in countless combinations before cooling and settling into more stable configurations to make up the neutrons and protons in ordinary matter. In this chaos before cooling, a fraction of these quarks and gluons collided randomly to form short-lived X-particles, so named for their mysterious unknown structures. Today, X-particles are extremely rare, although physicists have theorized that they may be created in particle accelerators through quark coalescence, where high-energy collisions can generate similar flashes of quark-gluon plasma. Now, physicists have found evidence of X-particles in the quark-gluon plasma produced in the heavy ion collisions of the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research near Geneva on the Franco-Swiss border. The authors used machine learning techniques to sift through more than 13 billion heavy ion collisions, each of which produces tens of thousands of charged particles. Amid this ultra-dense high-energy particle soup, the study's authors were able to tease out about 100 X particles of a type known as X3872, named after the particle's estimated mass. The results mark the first time researchers have detected X-particles in this quark-gluon plasma, an environment they hope will illuminate the particles as yet unknown structure. The study's lead author, Yenji Lee from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, says it's just the start of the story. Now that they know they can detect the X-particle signal, they want to use the quark-gluon plasma to probe the X-particle's internal structure. The basic building blocks of baryonic matter are the neutrons and protons, each of which are made up of three tightly bound quarks. 
Lee says that for years, scientists thought that for some reason, nature's only chosen to produce particles made from two or three quarks. It was until fairly recently when they began to discover signs of exotic tetraquarks, particles made up of rare combinations of four quarks. Scientists suspect that X3872 is either a compact tetraquark or an entirely new kind of particle made from two loosely bound mesons, subatomic particles which themselves are made up of two quarks. The authors are basing their analysis on the LHC's 2018 dataset, which produced more than 13 billion head-on collisions, each of which released quarks and gluons that scattered and merged into more than a quadrillion short-lived particles before cooling and decaying down into daughter particles that scatter away. They developed machine learning algorithms to single out X-particle decay patterns or angular distribution in the dataset. The authors now hope to eventually gather enough data to study X-particle structure. If the particle is a tightly bound tetraquark, it should decay more slowly than what it would were it a loosely bound meson. This is space time. Still to come, Starlink satellites falling out of the sky and two partial solar eclipses in 2022 at opposite ends of the planet. All that and more still to come on space time. Up to 40 of SpaceX's latest launch of Starlink satellites are tumbling out of control and burning up as they re-enter the atmosphere because of a solar storm. The geomagnetic storm generated by solar flare and coronal mass ejection activity on the Sun caused the Earth's atmosphere to expand, increasing orbital drag on the spacecraft, which at the time were in a low 210-kilometre-high parking orbit following their deployment after launch. This low initial orbit is used to allow failed satellites to fall back to Earth and burn up before the rest manoeuvre on to their eventual operational orbits between 540 and 570 kilometres above the surface. The increased atmospheric drag caused by the space weather resulted in 40 of the 49 satellites in the launch to slow down, decaying their orbit. Mission managers tried to save the 260-kilogram spacecraft by placing them into protective safe mode and then flying them edge-on to reduce drag. But only nine could be saved. The satellites were part of SpaceX's Starlink 47 launch, which had taken off a day earlier aboard a Falcon 9 rocket from Pad 39A at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The mission, which was SpaceX's third launch in four days, had already been delayed by a week because of problems with earlier flights. SpaceX has already launched more than 2,000 Starlink satellites and plans to eventually have a constellation containing more than 30,000 spacecraft. Each Starlink satellite is equipped with KU, KA and E-band phased array antennas to provide broadband internet telecommunications. The Starlink project has come under intense criticism from astronomers because of the interference the satellites cause to important scientific research. The problem is now so serious, the International Astronomical Union has set up a centre for the protection of dark skies to deal with the issue. This is space time. Still to come, 2022 to feature two partial solar eclipses at opposite ends of the planet, and later in the science report, a new study claiming increasing your sleep may help you lose weight. All that and more still to come on space time.
2022 will feature two partial solar eclipses, which will be best seen from opposite ends of the planet. The first, on April 30, will be visible from southwestern South America, the southeastern Pacific and Antarctica. It will be preceded by a total lunar eclipse on May the 15th and 16th, which will be on display across Africa, southwestern Europe and Southeast Asia, as well as much of North America, all of South America and the Atlantic, most of the Pacific, part of the Indian Ocean and across Antarctica. This year's second partial solar eclipse will take place on October the 25th and it'll be visible across Europe, southwestern Asia and northeastern Africa. It'll be followed on November the 7th and 8th by a total lunar eclipse, which will be visible across Australia, Asia, North America, the Arctic, northeastern Europe and part of Antarctica, as well as the Atlantic, eastern Indian and Pacific Northwestern Oceans. A solar eclipse happens when the Moon's orbit lines up so that it passes directly between the Earth and the Sun. Now, usually the Moon's orbit around the Earth is inclined by about 5 degrees compared to Earth's orbit around the Sun, so normally the Moon's orbit appears to cross the sky slightly above or below the path of the Sun. But about every 18 months or so, the lunar orbit places the Moon directly between the Earth and the Sun, resulting in a solar eclipse. Eclipses happen because although the Moon is 400 times smaller than the Sun, it's also 400 times closer to the Earth. So the two appear to be about the same size in the sky as seen from Earth. When the Sun, Moon and Earth line up exactly, the Earth experiences a total solar eclipse. As this occurs, the Moon begins to slowly pass in front of the Sun and a partial lunar shadow or penumbra crosses the surface of the Earth. Now, this can last an hour or more, as more and more of the Sun is hidden by the face of the Moon. Then, just before totality occurs, the crescent Sun converges into a single brilliant white diamond of sunlight as the last bits of the Sun's bright disk shines along the edge of the Moon, and the first glimpses of the faint corona create a ring around the Moon, an effect known as the diamond ring. In the last fleeting moments before totality, the diamond ring breaks up into a string of beads, created as the sun's rays shine through the low-lying valleys between the mountains along the limb or edge of the moon. Once this effect, known as Bailey's beads, ends, the moon is completely covered by the entire disk of the sun, and you're in totality. During totality, the darkest part of the moon's shadow, the umbra, crosses the Earth's surface. Now, people along the path of totality will get a total solar eclipse. During this period, the skies will go dark, stars will appear, and it will suddenly get noticeably cooler. Birds will start roosting, shadows will take on unusual crescent shapes, and you'll be able to see the sun's tenuous outer atmosphere, the corona, glowing milky white. Often explosions on the sun's surface called prominences will appear as spectacular bright pink or red flames, or as clouds stretching above the lunar limb. The path of totality can be up to 272 kilometres wide, although usually it's a lot less, and the further away you are from the centre line of the path, the shorter the eclipse duration will be. Now, if you're outside the line of totality, north or south of it, and that'll be the case this year, you'll only see a partial eclipse, which only part of the sun's disk will be covered by the moon. The amount of time the sun's completely covered by the moon can range from just a few seconds to as much as seven and a half minutes, depending on the particular orbital position. The reason each total eclipse is only visible over a small part of the Earth is because the moon's shadow is relatively small when it falls on the Earth. On average, the moon orbits the Earth at a distance of around 384,400 kilometres. But the moon's orbit around the Earth isn't perfectly circular. It's slightly elliptical. 
meaning one part of the orbit is a bit closer to the Earth, about 357,000 kilometres, that's known as perigee, and another part of the orbit is a bit further away, around 406,000 kilometres, that's called apogee. And when the Moon's orbit takes it a bit further away, the Moon looks a bit smaller in the sky. And if that just happens to coincide with a solar eclipse, it doesn't cover the entire face of the Moon. So, instead of producing a total solar eclipse, the Moon's passage across the Sun creates an annulus or ring of fire as the light from the Sun surrounds the dark Moon, resulting in an annular eclipse. Most solar eclipses are accompanied by a lunar eclipse, usually occurring two weeks earlier or later, which is due to the same orbital alignment which caused the solar eclipse. So, lunar eclipses and solar eclipses occur with equal frequency. But lunar eclipses are seen over a far wider area because Earth's shadow is far larger and covers far more of the lunar surface. A lunar eclipse occurs during full moon, when the Sun, Earth and Moon align. During this event, the Moon passes completely through the Earth's dark shadow or umbra. Now, even though the Earth completely blocks out sunlight from directly reaching the surface of the Moon, the Moon is still visible during a total lunar eclipse. You'll see the Moon get gradually darker and then take on a pinky or even rusty red colour as light from the Sun reflects through the Earth's atmosphere and undergoes what we call Rayleigh scattering, leaving only the longer wavelengths as all the Earth's sunsets and sunrises appear to happen at once to indirectly reflect onto the lunar surface. These upcoming lunar and solar eclipses are featured in the current issue of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. Joining us now with all the details is the magazine's editor, Jonathan Nally. G'day, Stuart. Yeah, well, in the current issue of the magazine, we actually have a complete guide to the year's astronomical viewing, all the things you can see coming up uh, in 2022, all the major sky events. So, for instance, there are going to be four eclipses during the year. There will be two solar eclipses and two lunar eclipses. Whether you see any of these eclipses or not uh, depends entirely upon where you live uh, in the world. Because with solar eclipses, you have to be really in the right spot. Well, you have to be in exactly the right spot or along a narrow line across the Earth if you want to see the totality of an eclipse, assuming it's a total eclipse. And if you're outside that area, you'll see a partial eclipse. But if you're way outside the area, you won't see any eclipse. On the other hand, with a lunar eclipse, as long as you're on the side of the Earth that happens to be pointed towards the Moon at that time, and you can be anywhere on the side of the Earth that's pointed towards the Moon at that time, when the, when the Moon goes into eclipse, you will see it. Okay, so, so that, they're very bit easy in that sense. That said, sometimes the moon goes into eclipse just as it's setting in the, in the west, so you miss it, or it can be uh, halfway through the eclipse by the time it rises in the east and you miss the first bit. So it all depends on where you live and what the timing is and that sort of thing. But at least we've got two solar and two lunar eclipses coming up this year. Is that unusual? Is that what we normally get in a year, two of these events? I say two oh, of these events because we normally have lunar eclipses two weeks before or two weeks after a solar eclipse. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it, it, it varies from year to year. Two solar and two lunar is a sort of an average. It's an average sort of year. Some years you don't get, um, don't get as many, and, and, and particularly for any particular location. Some, some locations you can miss out, for instance. You know, there might be a total lunar eclipse predicted or that it's going to happen during a particular year, but because you're on the wrong side of the Earth, you miss out. And sometimes you miss out the following year too. Sometimes it takes a couple of years for things to come around again where you uh, get the right circumstances for your location to see any particular kind of eclipse. Um, so, so, for instance, here in uh, Australia, the next solar eclipse or total solar eclipse that we get will be 2023, and it's just going to just clip the edge by a matter of kilometres of, of the northwest pointy bit 
of, um, of the Australian continent. And everywhere else is going to miss out in Australia. Just, you've got to be in that right spot, right there on the coastline, to get this eclipse in 2023. After that, there's nothing until 2028 uh, and that's for Australia. The Sydney one. It's going to be a beauty, though, because that's going to sweep right across the continent and go right over the top of Sydney. Now, another thing to watch for uh, is going to be four planets in a row in the morning sky. This will be on the morning of February the 28th. If you go out and have a look before sunrise, you'll see Saturn, Mercury, Venus, and Mars all in a nice line in the sky, which should look pretty spectacular. Only a month or so later, on April the 5th, you'll have Mars and Saturn will appear really, really close together in the night sky. The two planets, they're, they're a long way apart in space zones, of course, and that's many, many millions of kilometres, but they'll appear to be very close together on the sky. That should make for a magnificent sight. And the following month, on May the 1st, you're going to have Jupiter and Venus, the two brightest of the naked eye planets, and they're going to be extremely close because they'll look like they're sitting right on top of each other. That's Jonathan Alley, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. And don't forget, if you're having trouble getting your copy of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine from your usual retailer because of the current lockdown and travel restrictions, you can always get a print or digital subscription and have the magazine delivered directly to your letterbox or inbox. Subscribing's easy. Just go to skyandtelescope.com.au. That's skyandtelescope.com.au and you'll never be left in the dark again. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study claims they're getting a second Pfizer vaccine for COVID-19 two to four months after your first dose could improve your antibody response compared to just a three to six week gap. The findings reported in the journal Nature are based on tests on a group of healthcare workers vaccinated with Pfizer with a dose gap of three to six weeks compared to a second group vaccinated with a dose gap of more than eight weeks. Researchers say those vaccinated with a longer dose gap had a stronger antibody response and a similar T-cell response. Over 5.8 million people have now been killed by the COVID-19 coronavirus since it first spread out of Wuhan, China. However, the World Health Organization says the true death toll is likely to be at least double that amount, with more than 400 million confirmed cases globally. A new study has found that up to half of kids worldwide and a third of kids in the UK are consuming energy drinks every week and that kids who down them five or more times a week are more likely to have some health and behavioural issues. A report of the British Medical Journal has found that between 13 and 67% of kids consumed energy drinks in the past year. And in the United Kingdom, between 3 and 32% of kids consumed energy drinks at least once a week. Researchers found that consuming energy drinks five days or more per week was linked to poorer mental and physical health and overall worse well-being compared to kids who didn't consume these beverages. The authors say they also found consistent evidence linking energy drinks and self-harm, suicide, hyperactivity, poor academic performance and poor school attendance. Both internationally and in the United Kingdom, boys consumed energy drinks more often than girls and consumption was linked to headaches, sleep problems, alcohol use, and smoking. A new study claims that increasing the amount you sleep could help you lose weight and prevent obesity. The study recruited 80 participants who were classified as overweight and slept less than six and a half hours a night. Half the group were provided with a sleeping hygiene counselling session, which the researchers said increased their sleep by about 1.2 hours a night. 
A report in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that compared to other participants who continued their usual sleep routine, the sleep counselling group began consuming fewer calories a day. The researchers say this means increased sleep could assist in losing weight by encouraging less energy intake through food. When you've become a master teacher in Reiki and have your diploma in herbal medicine, why not add a specialization in angel and unicorn energy to your list of achievements? Tim Menham from Australian Skeptics says that's exactly what one woman's done after seeing angels while meditating and a unicorn while running her holistic therapy company. It's, it's a person, Callista McElroy, who used to be working at a research job in pharmaceutical company. I'm not quite sure which pharmaceutical company, not quite sure which particular job it was. She claimed that as a young kid, she used to get messages from angels and things. And then in the cynical teenage years, she dismissed that and then she started getting the messages again. Apparently, she was studying Reiki, which is the non-touch healing method, which is junk, and also doing a diploma in herbal medicine. And she started picking up these messages again, first of all from angels who were sort of talking to her. And then suddenly she started picking up messages from unicorns. In fact, she was visited by two unicorns, which, which, which you see were magnificent beasts. And they were... The horse, of course. Of course of course but uh, in her case that, that they started sharing energies and they were yeah, in tune with her energy and the unicorn energy so she's now started selling this as, as a, a, a healing methodology of angel power unicorn power and uh, she's it's just taken off over the last 15 years or so and uh, just a minute wasn't this part of the story of Harry Potter in the Dark Forest <laughs> it's probably somewhere in the Harry Potter I think Harry Potter used every sort of uh, mythological animal in there somewhere or other. So, yeah, so it, it no, could have been that. Wasn't been, he who must not be named was drinking unicorn oh, blood because of the purity of it all. That's right. Yeah, well, for the unicorns are pure. They can only be ridden by a virgin, apparently, or at least approached by a virgin. They get very scared of someone who's sullied. So uh, a virgin female, too. So I'm not quite sure what uh, Callista's state was at the time, but certainly sort of the, the unicorns were very friendly to her. And so she's obviously selling a service. She's got books. I think she's got books. She's got her treatments, all sorts of stuff, and she's teaching people to teach this, this angel, unicorn-type uh, energies, and everything is full of the standard, stock standard, pseudoscience, sciencey sounding words. It's almost a compendium of all the nuttiness that's out there about the stranger realms of healing and that sort of stuff, so dragging in angels, unicorns, reiki, some herbal stuff teaching energies unknown to science which only certain people can pick up on including her and her unicorns and it takes it to an extreme actually it's one of these it's a wonderful story because it does actually include so many different things but uh, overall I think it's uh, generally pretty silly but apparently she's teaching about a thousand people she claims and now sort of spreading her word uh, not just normal people practitioners practitioners <laughs> yeah I know oh dear oh dear all right but that's okay if People don't believe it. That's fine. That's their business, you know. I don't judge people, she says. I hope they don't judge me, but I think they will. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. And that's the show for now. 
Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial-free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group, and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel, and on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 